really disappointed that people won't be able to see the video because watching you eat that dumpling was a sight to behold. Hi, welcome to Scattered. We're a group of friends from the same church who are serving God in different countries and we're meeting online to chat through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We'd love you to join us. Hi everybody, welcome to Scattered. Um, lovely to have Helen and Mary with me and we are looking at chapter 8 in Esther this week. Last week we left chapter 7 with Haman being hung on his own gallows and in chapter 8 the first couple of verses show the reward then that the king gives to Esther. So Esther is rewarded with the wealth of Haman in his house and Mordecai is rewarded with the power of Haman, which is his ring. So it looks like things have turned considerably. So after we've seen all those positive reversals last week, what is the surprise then for us, ladies, in chapter 8, verse 3? I was kind of surprised because I thought everything had been resolved, right? But then we've got Esther having again to plead with the king falling at his feet and weeping, begging him. Um, and then the king in, in verse four, extending his gold scepter to Esther. So I'm like, haven't we done this already? Um, I was quite surprised by that. Hermione, any light you can throw on that for us? I mean, the easiest thing to say is it wasn't resolved, was it? At the end of chapter seven, you know, we had the the issue of Haman, the the evil one, the one doing the, the evil acts being dealt with, but actually we still have the reality of the edict being live and it, the edict's not dealt with by the end of chapter seven, isn't it? And I guess uh, Esther's whole thing is, yeah, Haman is a problem, but actually I'm aligned with my people. It's not an issue of personal vindication, is it? It's, a pers it's an issue of the, the salvation of the Jews and that's her primary purpose, not personal vindication. The personal vindication has been dealt with, but the salvation of the Jews hasn't been. And that's yeah, why she's interesting at his feet. Because the king must not care, really, that still thousands of people are about to be slaughtered. Um, to him, it's like, well, my wife was violated. So now he's dead. Everything's fine, right? Yeah, I um, felt the same way. I was like, why are you chilled out now and okay with the fact that your personal honour and pride has been elevated and dealt with? And yet you're not concerned about the death of an entire people group as if that's just totally normal to him. Including that's presumably really his wife. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like he can't relate to Esther, is it? Like, what, what's the big deal, buddy? He can't see that her concern is for her entire people because he doesn't seem to have that capacity within himself. Um, I really hope he called her buddy. Buddy, buddy. Sorry. Thank you. Nothing wrong with a northern accent, I'd just like to say. Um, so, yeah, great. Thanks, ladies. We see up with it. Whilst Haman's dead, his evil plan is still in place. And so Esther needs to go and plead with the king to reverse that edict. So what mirrors then and reversals do we see in these verses where Esther pleads with the king and then he, is, there's a change? He gives some power to Mordecai and Esther. And it's, there's lots of similarities with chapter three where the king gives power away to Haman. And it, here it feels again like he's giving power away to Mordecai and Esther. So can we do some compare and contrast and see what the similarities there are with um, chapter three and what reversal is going on? Come on, Hermione. 
Fine, fine then. I'll just fulfil all expectations. So, um, if we look at uh, chapter three, verse ten, we see that uh, the king gives Haman his ring, and then in chapter eight, verse two, it's the king gives Mordecai the very same ring. So the power, like you said, Jill, you know, the power that was given to Haman has been taken away from him and then given to Mordecai. Um, in chapter 3, verse 12, you've got Haman summoning the king's scribes. Then in chapter 8, verse 9, you've got Mordecai summoning the king's scribes. So throughout chapter 3, um, you see Haman doing all these acts. And then by the time we reach chapter 8, it's Mordecai. So at chapter 3, verse 12, again, the letters are written and sealed with the same ring. That's Haman doing that, sealing it with the ring. By uh, chapter 8, verse 10, we've got Mordecai sealing it with that, the ring that was given to him. Uh, I mean, there's more. Do you want me to go through them all? Mm. I don't have to. I swear. I, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Mary's happy that you're doing it, buddy. If I, was chapter... dist- I was a bit distracted by my ADD. Sorry. <laughs> chapter three, verse 13. You've got, um, you know, the edict says that the Jews and the women and the children are going to be killed in one day. And then by the chapter eight, verse 11, you've got the enemies of the Jews and their wives and children well we'll talk about that I'm sure but they're presumably their wives and children to be killed on one day yeah you've just got all these reversals going on I think the other difference is the way that the edict went out so in chapter three it says it goes out in haste but by the time we're at chapter eight you've got the the edict going out in great haste you know the king's finest horses are taken and so you've got you've got those those reversals going on as well i mean i've got reversals in chapter four if you want me to keep going that i think you've done a very good job for us there buddy thank you (laughs) so are there any um are there any significant differences then those are all the things that are really that are similar about the way the um edicts went out and the way that things happened can we spot any differences yes mary anything to say (laughs) was that what are the differences i i i I, uh, the main, the main difference is the main difference is that this time it's written to the Jews and the leaders of the Persian Empire, and the Jews are the first one on the list. Two, the Jews and the satraps and all these people of the empire. And so, before where the Jews were going to be the victims, now the Jews are elevated to the position of having legitimacy within the Persian Empire. And not only that, they are the first one mentioned in the edict. So their ranking mm. order is Jews. Then everyone else of ranking order in the empire i i listened to a good preach on this and the guy um jumpy would have loved this because he had three points um but he talked about how god reverses the sentence the sadness and the status in this so we've got the sentence of the jews is reversed um the sadness so we've got that huge like terrible mourning that happens in the land uh, when they f- first hear the first decree um, and then we've got the the joy that's turned into joy when they hear about this degree, decree um, and then we've got the status so like the status of Mordecai goes from kind of being this guy in ash and sackcloth to becoming like this basically second to the king prime minister figure dressed in robes of royalty and with a crown on his head and I loved that. Like the guy, the guy in the sermon was challenging us to think about reversals kind of in our life. Like it's it's nice and it's obviously really encouraging to read of these reversals in history that's got God's done. But like, do we really believe 
that God can and will reverse stuff in our own lives. Like he doesn't always, but do we really believe that he can, you know, change that difficult situation that we're in or um, heal that person who's suffering or all, all the difficult things in our lives? I think I sometimes find myself being like, oh, God did that amazing thing in Esther, didn't he? But actually not thinking, well, that same God is working in my life. So actually he can change this difficult thing for me like maybe I don't even ask sometimes because I just think oh this is rubbish or maybe I give up asking yeah that it's it makes me think about you know when she initially asked that we looked at last week it felt like it was the the odds were stacked against her weren't they for the for the king to do anything in her favor and yet she was still really bold and brave in her asking because her confidence by that point was in God and I guess that's a really good illustration for us isn't it about being bold and brave and bringing these things to God but trusting mm. that he wiser than we are about what he how he answers and what he does and I'd say like my the root of my unbelief in God changing things comes from the fact that I can't control it and therefore what can God do yeah and I think um it's interesting how isn't it how in this passage God manages to bring about all these reversals you know it all started didn't it with a sleepless night although God's not mentioned we can see him at work and how that contrasts with Xerxes here who can't even reverse his own decrees like he is humiliated because he can't actually fulfill the queen's request and you know all the power and wealth in the world can't cancel death and yet God is at work behind the scenes you know if Mordecai hadn't been were in the position that he was because of everything that had happened, this decree would never have been able to be, have been dealt with. You know, if we, if Haman had still been in place, there's no way that, that this would have happened. This reversal would have happened. And so you can just see how actually we think we're the ones who have the power to reverse things. And, and sometimes we do, but actually the one who really holds all the power and who's working in the background is God. Yeah, that's so helpful, Helen, because that's my tendency, I guess, to think that I can change situations myself with the right words or the right persuasion. And it's helpful is this book, isn't it? Because Esther is bold and brave, but her confidence isn't in her words, but it's in the fact that God will do the the right thing, um, which my heart needs Mm -hmm. to hear regularly. So Helen referenced a few minutes ago the whole virtual holy war then that is declared here. How do we palette the level of... Um, violence that Mordecai's decree involves yeah I was I struggle with this because it says doesn't it you know they've got the where is it verse 11 um they've got the right to protect themselves they can destroy kill and annihilate any unforced force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children and then there's this bit at the end that says and to plunder the property of their enemies and I'm like yeah like give them the right to defend themselves because the first decree has gone out. And so there will be people who are readying themselves to attack the Jews. But then there's this bit on the end that that's like, and you can just steal from your enemies. And then when, yeah, we're going to see, aren't we, when it actually happens, there's so much bloodshed. I was quite surprised. Yeah. I think um, you need to think about, don't you, whether you look at this, from a moral standpoint or whether you look at it within the wider context of where Israel is at this point in history. So I think in Esther, there's a lot of moral ambiguity, isn't there? And especially as we look at it with our modern eyes, this, if anyone attacks you, you can kill them. 
and you can kill their wives and children and take all their stuff to our modern ears sounds horrific and way over the top and you know almost hypocritical doesn't it but we talked about this a little bit you know this needs uh, last week this needs to be put into the context of holy war you know like the the survival of the jews had to be maintained in order for god's promises to be fulfilled and you know you can ask about you know what about good people there were probably good people in those people groups right but then <sighs> Only God is holy, good and righteous. And I guess it is only it's only issued, isn't it, against those that attack the Jews. And I think the other thing to add to what Helen said is, I think in the Old Testament, there's a lot stronger view, isn't it, that if you're attacking God's people, you're attacking God himself. So it's people that are choosing to set themselves against God that um, this edict is aimed at. And so I found that helpful that it's those that are um, setting themselves against God. And, and we know that's foolish, isn't it? To set yourself against the Lord is a serious thing and there's serious consequences for it. Yeah, and, and people who um, set themselves against God, that evil has to be dealt with, doesn't it? And I think often we want God to destroy sin and evil, but we want him to leave the people alone. We, we, we don't see the evil and the person as one. We see them as separate entities. And that's not generally how the Bible views it. I think mm. the other thing that's worth saying here is that there's nine months between this edict being written and it happening. So it feels like that's a bit like the, the zone that we're living in now, isn't it? That there's been time. Jesus has come. We've heard the gospel message and the, the zone and time we're in now is encouraging people to respond to that and to come to Jesus and to come to the Lord. Um, I, I guess I found a really helpful quote when I was reading on all this and it said, we abandon holy war in its Old Testament form because we live in a different era in the history of redemption. We live in the era of outpouring of grace in which we fight with spiritual weapons to bring the gospel to the nations, defeating God's enemies by seeing them graciously transformed into his friends. Now we fight with the sword of the spirit, the word of God, which instead of turning live foes into dead corpses can transform dead sinners into live saints. Now we wrestle in prayer, seeking God's enlivening work in the hearts and souls of our friends and neighbours. Um, what gives urgency to our task isn't the fact that God's nature has changed and his edict of death against rebellious sinners still stands. All men, you women, young and old, must ultimately bow the knee before Christ or face the consequences of that. Um, yeah, so like in, in the light of what's going on in the world at the moment and people claiming holy wars against each other, that's really helpful, isn't it? Yeah, I, don't, I just don't think we can use that passage to justify that in any way. Sorry, mm -hmm. Helen. No, I was going to say, I think, um, you know, God gave the decree of death on people at, in the Garden of Eden, didn't he? But he has issued the counter decree of life through Jesus. And, you know, um, Jesus has ensured that everything that was being dealt with through holy war, sacrificial system, all these things, Jesus has dealt with that. And so we have no justification whatsoever for holy war. So let's go back to this passage in Esther then. And where is safety found in this chapter? 
Um, and then I guess I'd also like us to talk about where are we tempted to look for false safety and how does this chapter help us with that? Yeah, I think it's clear in this chapter and in other chapters that safety is definitely not found in having the king's favour. Um, this king is volatile and frankly quite terrifying in how much he doesn't care about life and death. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, There's this huge rejoicing. I was struck by the huge rejoicing of the Jews in verse 16. Uh, for the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour. You know, they're celebrating together, feasting. And you kind of think, well, that's because they feel safe now. And that's beautiful because they're they're part of God's people and they know that he's got a plan for them and that he will carry forward his purposes in them. I mean, ultimately, our safety is found in being part of God's kingdom, isn't it? And being under God's wings, finding refuge in him, even when things aren't physically safe. We know that we're going one day to be with the safe one. Um, that's where we find our safety, isn't it? And I think there's like a taste of that here where God's people see that deliverance and know that their true safety is found in him. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it, that some of the people of the empire declare themselves Jews because they see with a clarity here that that's the place of safety. If you're part of God's people, then that's where you're safe. Now, I know there's a big debate. Go on, Helen. I was going to say, I, I am not convinced that they quote became Jews um I think they probably aligned themselves with the Jews because their God is in control their God is the one that's mighty I'm sure there probably were some conversions but I I'm cautious about us saying that they were all magically converted and became Jews yeah I agree but I think they saw that that's that's where safety was found if you were there was there was safety if you aligned yourself with God's people. Yes, and but I guess we even as Christians we get confused with that, don't we? I think we we're constantly looking for ways to feel safe in the here and now, rather than um, doing that harder heart work, like Mary said, of our eternal safety being the thing that we treasure most. Yeah, and I think we need to be clear, don't we, that when Jesus died on the cross and rose again physical holy war was over but actually the holy war just moved to within human hearts because that's where sin and evil resides you know i was just quickly reading ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 where it says for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places you know there is holy war in our hearts um we need to be putting on and it goes on doesn't it the next verse of um ephesians 6 to talk about the whole armor of god um <laughs> you know the 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 holy war is now in human hearts we need to recognize that that includes our own hearts and and recognize that actually jesus is the only one who's righteous and just enough to wage holy war with clean hands and a, and a pure heart um, we are not good enough. We are going to lose. We need to recognize that Jesus is the only one who can deal with that sin and evil in our hearts. Um, we need to not only align ourselves with his people, but align ourselves with Jesus himself. Um, just practically, ladies, any examples you can think of of ways that we're tempted to look in the wrong places for that eternal safety that Jesus offers us? I quite like the idea of being safe um 
in a physical sense from disease and things like that and and horrible things happening in my life and 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 in the lives of especially in the lives of my kids um I struggle with anxiety so I often and I have a very active imagination so I I therefore try and control everything around me so that things bad things don't happen to them or to me um and therefore I put my faith in very tangible things like hand sanitizer and NHS websites and texting various doctors about things that I think are wrong with my kids and stuff like that like I definitely am someone who less quickly goes to my safe father in heaven um, and I often more quickly just feel very afraid and try and you know if I think my kids have eaten or touch something that they shouldn't have done or something like that. I'm very quick with the hand sanitizer rather than kind of seeing the bigger picture of a God who is in control and I'm not. So how, yeah. how then, Mary, does this passage, how do we rub this passage into your heart in those moments? What's helpful from what we've seen in Esther about how to change that perspective almost? This book has been really helpful for me to see that actually it's, it's false control I have. It's false power that I have. Um, and that actually I should be not as anxious, recognizing that God is in control. And yes, sometimes awful things do happen, but there is a good God behind it. And also that he's a God of reversals. Like I think for me, it was a bit of a um, reminder that often I just, yeah, just casually, I'm not believing that God can, you know, even if the bad thing happens, that he's a God of reversals and whether that's a reversal that he reverses the situation or whether, whether it's the reversal that, you know, eternally things are okay. And even though everything looks rubbish and hard now, um, I am going to be okay because my hope is in him and my refuge is in him. Um, like for me, it was a big realization that these reversals that happen here are apl- applicable in my life because I need reversals all the time and I often don't even ask yeah and I guess linking those two things together is often what the the reversal has to happen in our hearts doesn't it as in we don't control our circumstances God does but a question I found really helpful in the last week or two is what's hijacking my heart in this situation because I'm Mm. so quick to the social worker in me is so quick to look for solutions that will change the circumstance but actually the better question to ask myself or ask a friend that I'm talking to is what's hijacking your heart here and stopping you Mm. worshiping the true and living God. And Mm. like, I found that so helpful in the last couple of weeks of we've been put into isolation. We're not ill, but you know, we're not allowed to leave the house at the minute. And I've had to really work that into my heart of don't let this circumstance hijack your joy or your peace because God's still in control, isn't he? And Esther's been really helpful for me thinking let's preach like we saw last week actually let's preach the gospel to our own hearts so that it changes the way we respond thanks ladies that's really helpful um thanks for listening everybody and we'll see you next time for our last edition in the Esther series bye 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 bye